This is Until All Are Free, a podcast by the Exodus Road. I'm your host, Preston Goff. And on this episode, I'm excited to welcome a voice from the other side of the production, Isaac Lay, our producer. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, it's nice to be on this side of the mic. A few weeks back, Isaac and I had the privilege of sitting down with our CEO, Matt Parker, at the Parker's home in Colorado Springs. Hi, we're here for a podcast. Hi, hi, intro, intro. We had the plan to record as many organizational stories as we could. These are stories of encounters with victims of trafficking and stories of survivor rescues. Preparing for this time, we knew that the stories that Matt had to share were wildly complex. They featured international crime syndicates alongside ordinary men and women fighting human trafficking on the front lines of their own neighborhoods and communities in Thailand, India, and Latin America. And it's this very concept of transnational trafficking that today's episode is actually focused on. On its face, it's going to be tempting to think of the story that you're about to hear as if it's a Hollywood movie plot. In fact, it does feature the presence of a mafia and it includes a chase scene. But in reality, this story is far from glamorous. It's raw and it's real. This is the first of many stories that you're going to hear from these few days that we spent together at the Parker's home. So here is the story of Cindy. Yeah, let me tell Cindy's story. Let's just, are we ready? Yeah. I'll just do Cindy's story. So really years ago, maybe maybe just a year into doing undercover work uh, with law enforcement in Southeast Asia, you know, I was still just learning the streets. And there's so much that goes into learning um, the streets and the marketplaces where people are bought and sold and how they operate. But there was a, a particular night um, where I was in a major city and um, but part part of what we were trying to do was bring awareness to the problem. It wasn't just uh, going undercover. It was how do we share this with the world? And so we would have certain bloggers or influencers that you know come along, and I would educate them, and I would I would show them the red light districts, not really go undercover, but just give them an exposure to the world that is, um, so that they could then take that back and and share that through their platforms. And we were in this major city and I had an influencer with me and it was late. And um, this particular city we were in uh, has uh, Ugandans who are trafficked. Uh, and But they, they come out and work the street around 1 a.m. to about 6 a.m. That's when the Ugandans show up. You know, it's so bizarre. And that's part of learning the streets is uh, the streets can change from hour to hour. And for whatever reason, the Ugandans would come out around 1 a.m. Well, it's kind of street rumored that the Ugandan girls are controlled by the Nigerian mafia or the Nigerian mafia is a part of the syndicate control mechanism for Ugandans. And I knew that. And um, I had worked... Uh, this particular area before, but I was really, really tired today. I was really tired on this day. And I'd escorted this influencer back to her hotel around 1230 in the morning and I made sure she was safe. And then I was walking back to where I was staying. And I just remember having this overwhelming feeling of exhaustion. Um, 
you know, having kind of taken these influencers around and, and teaching them all, all day while trying to maintain uh, their safety and physical security. So I'm walking back to my hotel and I'm walking along this stretch of highway where the Ugandans will come out. And sure enough, they were out this particular night, which wasn't a surprise to me. Um, but in these environments, a lot of times, uh, whether it's prostitutes, knowing and willing participants in the sex trade or traffic victims, yeah, they're all kind of coached on catcalling, uh, trying to get your attention and make a sale. And, and I'm used to that, but I was so... And normally, just so you guys understand, this is how tired I was. Normally, I'm friendly to everybody. And I'm kind to everybody, even even if, of course, I'm not going to participate in whatever they're selling. I'm uh, still trying to be that that kind of light in a dark place, even in the most bizarre circumstances. But tonight, I was so tired, it just irritated me. And I was just really ignoring them, <laughs> which is not like me. But that's how tired I was. And I was, I was walking down this street. Um, you know, first girl, cat called, you know, hey, you know, take me home with you. Where are you going? You know, that kind of thing. Second girl, cat called third girl for whatever reason, the third or fourth girl, uh, something just pricked my spirit or my heart. And I just stopped and I just engaged with her. And, you know, of course she was trying to get me to buy her, but there's a lot of, uh, street sidewalk bars, pop-up bars in this particular part of the city at least there there was at this this was years ago they don't do it anymore but you could just sit there and have a beer right on the sidewalk and i said hey look you know i'm not going to take you home with me but can i buy you a drink and she said yes yeah, sure and so we sat down and just started to ask her about her day and um how she was doing and uh what her name was and she said her name was Cindy and i'm sitting down with her as an investigator and I knew that a lot of girls that line up on this particular stretch are trafficked from Uganda. At least that was the rumor on the street that I'd heard. And so I started to ask her very nonchalantly, you know, hey, Cindy, I, you know, how long have you been here? Where are you from? And she says, well, I'm from, she said, Tasmania. I'm like, oh, okay. Well, I've, you know, and I just told her, I'm like, I've heard that a lot of girls here on the street are from Uganda. Have you have you have you experienced that? And she's like, "Oh no, I don't I don't know anybody from Uganda." Oh, okay. <laughs> so we keep talking. And um you know, I think at the beginning she was fairly uncomfortable with me. And I was just trying to kind of break down break through that barrier. And so I just started to ask her about her family. You know, do you have a husband? Do you have children? And she did. She had a husband, she had kids. And um I said, you know, well, how often do you get to go back and visit them? And she said, well, you know, I get to go back every couple of months and I'm able to talk to them and and I just had in my gut that this girl Cindy was not telling me the truth. This is Isaac. I want to pause the story here for just a second. After we had recorded that first day with Matt, I came away with some questions. Yeah, I, I did too. I did too. What, what were you curious about? I was curious about why Matt chose to ask the questions that he did. 
Um, he could have asked any number of questions, but he specifically chose to ask her about her family and where she was from. I looked at some of the information from the UN about human trafficking, and they have some excellent resources. They have this chart, and uh, we'll link it on our website, that I think is really helpful in structuring how someone might fall prey to human trafficking. So this chart is divided into three categories, the act, the means, and the purpose. The act of human trafficking would include transferring or harboring a person. Trafficking doesn't always mean moving someone to another city. You could be trafficked in your own city. The means of trafficking someone would mean deceiving that person with the promise of a job or actually physically abducting them. Uh, it might mean threatening them or their family. And this is all done for a specific purpose, which could be forced labor, could be sexual exploitation, slavery. In many cases of trafficking, especially transnational situations where a victim ends up being trafficked out of their home country and into another country, they are coerced with the allure of a false promise. So especially in the countries that the Exodus Road is involved in, um, what we hear often is, well, our our daughter or this this victim thought that she or he was accepting a job as um, a maid or working at a restaurant, or we've even heard things like working in a call center and um, these reputable good opportunities, and they turn out to be far from that. Um, and so I think the UN is aware of this, and and the the chart that we've linked on the website is just really helpful in understanding the way that trafficking even takes place. Yeah, exactly. And uh, the UN even sort of expands this chart to include uh, criminal organizations and syndicates. Criminal organizations, especially groups with international influence, they can create the framework by which each of these steps can occur. They arrange movement for the act via a plane ticket or a boat ride, or they have some sort of vehicle that they can move somebody. And then for the means, they may supply the deception or coercion or threats. And then they control specific segments of a marketplace that they want to fill with those people. Right. So so then all of this means that there's a, there's some sort of framework by which men and women can be exploited, moved from their homes, relocated to a new place, and then managed by that criminal syndicate where they can monitor the movements of that person, right? Yeah. Exactly. So that kind of leads us back to Cindy. Like, I mean, that makes sense why Matt's asking some of these questions. Oh, yeah, completely. I mean, it's in the two questions that he asks, he can learn a ton about her situation. So is she allowed to continue to communicate to the people that are most important to her? And if she isn't, that means there's obviously some sort of deception that uh, the criminal organization is trying to maintain. Right, right. Because she might tell the truth. She might tell them that there's something going on here that is out of my control, that I'm being exploited. Uh, but if they cut off that communication from her, she obviously couldn't say that. Um, and then with the other question that he asks, where is, she, where is she from, that has more to do with the act. Was there an act of physically moving her from one country to another country? So I also had another question about the Nigerian mafia. That was an organization that I had never heard about before. And I Matt kind of brings it up as a, a street rumor that uh, the Nigerian mafia is controlling Ugandan women. Um, in Thailand. In Thailand, exactly. So I, I wanted to look up some uh, information about the Nigerian mafia just to see sort of 
what kind of group this was and if that was even consistent with sort of what we know about them. I do want to preface this by saying I am by no means an expert on international criminal syndicates. Uh, This is just some of the research I found about the Nigerian mafia. So the Nigerian mafia is one of many criminal enterprises operating in Thailand. Uh, They operate alongside other groups that are primarily Japanese, Chinese, Russian, or Thai criminal syndicates. Nigerian mafia is more of a general term, a catch-all that describes several different groups. They've been around for a while, operating internationally since the 70s and 80s. It looks like the Nigerian mafia really began to make headlines a few years ago when they moved into some European cities, specifically Italian cities, right around the time that thousands of Syrian, Afghan, and Iraqi refugees were making their way into Europe during the European migrant crisis. I don't have all the details, obviously, but I, I did some find some trends in the reporting. Right, and so what did you find there? It looks like the Nigerian mafia is primarily involved in two rackets. That is the drug trade and prostitution. Thai papers usually publicize their drug busts, and they cite the Nigerian mafia as major movers in the region. Um, the stories about human trafficking and prostitution were also pretty extensive, but uh, they mostly focused on the Nigerian mafia moving women into European sex markets rather than sex markets in Thailand. I found major media outlets in the U.S., like NPR and the Washington Post, describe the Nigerian mafia's involvement in moving women out of Africa and into international sex markets. Here's a quote from the NPR, and I'd like you to read it if, yeah, sure. if you would. Sure. Um, it's about a specific group called Black Axe moving women into Italian sex markets. So if you want to just read that quote right there. Yeah, yeah. So, so it says, quote, victims are often taken to a traditional voodoo or juju priest before leaving who makes them swear to remain loyal to the person helping them leave the country. They leave Nigeria by bus and travel in a small group through the desert of Niger and into Libya. For some women, the exploitation starts there, where they're hidden in compounds of African migrants and forced into sex work under threat of violence before being packed into a small boat to cross the Mediterranean. For others, it isn't until they reach Italy and contact the person who's supposed to help them find work. That's when they learn that they owe, quote, tens of thousands of euros for the journey and will have to work as sex workers to pay it off. There is so much that we've already sort of described, right? That the they're involved in moving women into a different kind of market. There's a sort of lie or threat. The, the extortion. Yeah, extortion. Exactly. All of this led me to the place where I felt like I understood why Matt might be suspicious of the details that Cindy shared with him on the street. This is especially true given Matt's history with transnational crime syndicates and specifically his past encounters with the Nigerian mafia. So before we get back to Cindy's story, I have another quick segment that I want to share with you. It's another story that Matt told, and I think it might bring some clarity uh, into Cindy's situation. So here, let's play that story. One of the things that we'd heard from, just rumored on the street, was that the Ugandans may be controlled by a Nigerian mafia. And there's lots of Nigerian men uh, in Southeast Asia really involved in illicit drug activity. And, you know, I I just say that from experience. You, you can walk down the street and, 
you know, hang out with Nigerian guys that are just loitering really in front of 7-Elevens or establishments and they're offering drugs to you. Um, you know, my, it's just like anything else. <laughs> they know that they're somewhat being monitored by law enforcement, so they're going to sell to foreigners. They're not going to sell to Thai men or women. They're going to target people that don't look like they're from around. Because again, it's beyond their thinking that tourists would be working with law enforcement or know how to do that. And so um, the reason I bring that up is one particular situation we we were in, I found myself in, I was undercover in a, in a small town really known for uh, sex tourism. And, um, you know, these criminal syndicates, one of the mechanisms they have to protect their business is they pay what we call spotters, but they're um, individuals that watch the street. They're on the payroll of the mafia to protect really as an early warning system. Their job is to sit and loiter on the outskirts, just on the outskirts of a red light community um, and basically pick up the phone and call the bar owner or brothel owner if they see law enforcement come. That's our understanding of their first and primary objective. Their second objective is to identify any threat against the establishment, namely, people like me, uh, but, but anyone on the street that doesn't look like they belong, anyone on the street who's beh behaving oddly, these spotters are paid to, to bring notification of that to uh, traffickers. So in this unique situation, uh, I was undercover in a, in a brothel and um, we, we wear body-worn covert recording devices and I can't tell you exactly where we get it or what we have, but I can tell you that, that we collect evidence through uh, these really small body-worn devices. And I was trying to capture footage of a clear act um, of sexual abuse that was violating lots of different laws with the intent of taking this evidence to the district attorney's office. But I just wasn't, I wasn't positioned well, you know, trying to capture video evidence with a very small device. You're wearing it on your body and you're trying to, to, to position yourself in a way that it's not obvious that you're filming. That, that's a skill. That's a real skill. But uh, where I was sit, seated, it, it, I just, you know, this, this, this illicit activity was happening right in front of me, but I couldn't quite capture it. So I took a liberty and I crossed my knee and I kind of elevated uh, to capture it. And uh, I was with an undercover operative, my, uh, my second. And he noticed that uh, a young woman had walked into the establishment and sat down, looked right at me, right as I was doing this move. She wrote some things down on a notepad and, and exited the building. And that was an indicator that I, I, my cover was blown. She had seen me do something she did not like, and she was on her way to go report me. That, that's what our belief was. Could it have been something else? Sure. You, you, you never know. I mean, but you have to behave with uh, a situational awareness. We, we have our own early warning indicators of failure, and that was one of them. <laughs>
And so we have tactics that we engage when we feel blown. We always work in teams of two or more at the Exodus Road. And um, so we kind of initiated the, this exfiltration maneuver where I split off from my teammate, uh, went in a separate direction and was trying to see if I was followed. And we call that a surveillance, surveillance detection route or an SDR. And we train for this because uh, if we are being followed, number one, we want to know. Number two, we want to notify the team. And we, we oftentimes have teams of eight or 10 men and women operating in the same environment, not the same establishment, but the same environment. And so we can come to each other's aid if need be. So around the corner, my heart's beating fast. I know I'd, I'd made a mistake. And, uh, you know, went into a storefront and uh, was able to kind of change up my look a little bit and came out of the storefront. I didn't see anyone following me. And I rounded the corner and I sat down at a McDonald's. And right as I sat down, I look at the front door and in walks a Nigerian man. And he looks me right in the eyes for a little bit too long. And he sits down across the restaurant from me. And I knew I was in trouble. <laughs> you know, and it it's just these surreal moments of holy shit, what am I going to do? So I woke up, uh, other Delta operatives notified them, and they were en route to my location. And, you know, I'm trying to nonchalantly, like, read the newspaper, or look at my phone or something benign, and I'd ordered a Coke, and I'm just sitting there trying to, to, to be cognizant of this man, this giant guy. Um, through my peripheral vision, and he's just staring at me the whole time. And my heart's beating. And I'm like, how am I going to get out of this situation? Um, because as much as I had activated Delta to come to my aid, I, I had figured he probably had done the same thing. And so <laughs> I'm sitting there just praying, God, how do I get out of this situation? What am I supposed to do? And right then I look up and this massive line of Chinese tourists starts coming in the, in the front of McDonald's through the door. And I just instinctively got up and as they were coming in, I exited. And they were between me and the guy that was staring me down. And then I ran an SDR uh, and, and he wasn't following me. And I, I left the operating environment and I'm, I'm thankful I was able to, to get out of that. But I think at the end, you know, these are the types of, of control mechanisms that are employed to guard and protect traffic victims or traffic survivors. And it is dangerous. Okay, that is an unbelievable story. And even more so, it gives credence, right, to this notion that the powers that are involved in the systemic process of human trafficking can exert their influence over victims in very powerful ways, especially in sex trafficking destinations like Thailand. And so all of this kind of leads me, Isaac, back to our original conversation and really the reason why you brought me into this space today. Where do we leave off with Cindy? 
Yeah, so let's go back to Cindy's story. Matt's sitting with her on the street and asking her questions. Uh, he asked about her family. He asked about where she was from. Um, so I just pulled out my phone and, and I said, oh, well, let me show you photos of my kids. In the undercover environment, I, people ask me if I have kids and I say I don't. I don't. I don't talk about my personal life at all. We have cover stories that we use. And that's to protect my own heart because I have to wear a certain mask when I'm undercover and it's a total different persona than my normal daily existence. Um, but for whatever reason, that night with Cindy in my heart, I knew I needed to do that. I can't really explain that. And, and so I'm showing her photos of my, my kids and telling them how much I, telling her how much I miss them. and. And I just said, Cindy, you know, kids need their mom. You know, I hope you can, you can go home soon. And man, that was the thing. She teared up and she looked me in the eyes and she said, Matt, I'm so sorry. I've been lying to you this whole time. She said, I'm from Uganda and I've been trafficked. And uh, I, I haven't seen my kids in about a year. I don't know how to get home. She said they, I took a job knowing that it would be prostitution, but they promised me that I'd be sleeping with executive level businessmen in really nice hotels. And they glamorized, you know, really being a, an escort for wealthy men. But when I arrived here, they took my passport, which, such a common story. They took my passport and they told me I'd have to walk the street and they refused to feed me until I would walk the street. She said for the first week I refused, but I got so hungry. And she said, I'm sorry I lied to you, but the trafficker pays men like you, white men, to ask me the same kinds of questions you've asked me. And if I try to tell the truth, they beat me up. She said, in fact, they had a law enforcement officer uh, beat me up. And, and Cindy had a chipped tooth. One of her front teeth was chipped and she said it was the result of being beaten by a cop for trying to tell the truth. And so she said, you see, I." I lied to you and I'm so sorry, but I, I didn't know what else to do. So I just told her, I'm like, hey, Cindy, I'm so sorry I, about your situation. I, I would love to help you. I have some friends that work here in town in this city um, that, that help girls like you and they can help you get back to Uganda. Would you like help? Um, and she did. So I took her phone number and I, I worked collaboratively with another nonprofit organization. They had an offsite meeting uh, with Cindy. We provided security for that meeting. And uh, they were able to, to get Cindy immediately off the streets and over a period of a few months, uh, kept her in a safe house, got her a new passport, and were, were able to get her back to, not only get her back to Uganda, but help her start her own business. And she's back with her husband and her kids now. Um, 
But I think what's remarkable to me about that story is I had walked by three other women. Because I was really tired. And that bothers me. Because the first three were trafficked too. There's really... (laughs) The problem that the world faces in general, the average human faces is the same problem I still face, even though I should know better. And it's that we walk by those who so desperately need us because it's inconvenient. And of course, you know, I have grace for myself. I mean, you know, I don't walk by everybody. And it's okay to be fatigued. (laughs) But in this environment, with this unique problem, and well, other problems too, Uh, abject poverty. For for whatever reason, when it feels inconvenient, we, we tend to walk by. But I am thankful that for whatever reason, Cindy got my attention. Why do you think that she trusted you? That's such a great question. It's a great question because of the implications for her of taking that kind of risk and the courage it must require. You know, it's a a roll of the dice for her. And I think a lot of people don't understand why a, a victim of human trafficking, a survivor of human trafficking would not seek out help. Why don't they just run away? Because that's kind of our logical thought, especially as we approach the problem of human trafficking as if we're not responsible at all. It's someone else's, it's her problem. She's trafficked, she should run away. She should call 911, these kind of basic things. But what people need to understand, because of the uniqueness of corruption, both in the law enforcement side, but the way criminal syndicates operate, they're very smart. They know how to keep girls and boys under duress some threat. If you try to escape, we will fill in the blank. And it's normally not, it can be physical harm to that person, but it it can get way more psychological than that. We'll go get your sister and we'll, we'll rape her or we'll make her walk the street since you won't. And these people these syndicates are violent. They, they'll do that. For Cindy, I have this belief that the thing that tipped the domino for her was when I showed her photos of my own kids. It was that vulnerability, that relatability as a parent. But I can only imagine the risk that she took that night, especially after being beaten up for it before. And oftentimes, you know, we talk about collaboration and it, that is an instance, an example of where collaboration was critically important. Every player was instrumental in Cindy's freedom. You know, the Exodus Road found Cindy, but we didn't have uh, the, 
the knowledge or relationships with the appropriate agencies to get Cindy home. And then once Cindy was home, she needed uh, job skills training, you know? Um, and so each player in a collaborative relationship uh, plays these critical roles. And there's not really, that I know of, a, a singular NGO who can do it all. Oh, I forgot. So when Cindy was recovered and she was in the safe house, um, you know, I just, what I felt compelled to, to see if we couldn't fix her tooth, you know, that had been knocked out or chipped. And um, it just felt like one of those things that was taken away from her. And it felt like we needed to give it back. And I feel like that often with, with people who suffer abuse at the hands of a trafficker. You know, they're going to carry these wounds the rest of their life. They'll never fully be restored. They will, they will be shaped forever because of the types of abuse that they've endured. However, I'm often shocked at the resilience of the human spirit. These men and women and boys and girls, their ability to overcome blows my mind. But when we have the opportunity uh, to give back something that was taken, if, if it's within our power to do it, 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 we should do it. So we got our tooth fixed. We fixed her tooth. I'm just so struck by the intentionality of that, that this symbol of trauma that would stare back at Cindy every time she looked in the mirror is now gone. You know, we talk a lot about the role of dignity and restorative justice in the lives of survivors here at the Exodus Road. And I think that this is a great example of restored dignity. And that's not to say that it fixed everything. It doesn't mean that Cindy suddenly forgot about all the trauma that she had experienced, but it is a beautiful example of a creative way that one step in the journey of her restoration took place. Every investigative process and every rescue operation that we're involved in, every survivor story is different and they're each unique. And so Cindy, we're celebrating your rescue your opportunity for new life in this moment. Thanks for joining us on this episode of Until All Are Free. If you've been listening and have began to wonder how you can take part, how you can join us in this fight against human trafficking, I want to make you aware of our search and rescue community. The search and rescue community is filled with people just like you who are committed to empowering rescue, empowering the investigations and the operations that you hear and the stories that we celebrate together, just like Cindy's. So if you're interested in joining search and rescue with a monthly gift, I'd invite you to visit our website at theexodusroad.com or text the word free to 51555. Until All Are Free is a podcast by The Exodus Road a nonprofit dedicated to the strategic fight against human trafficking across the globe. The podcast is hosted by me, Preston Goff, and produced by Isaac Lay. 
Our internal themes and mastering are produced by Lucas Lay, and the music you've heard on the intro and outro of this episode was produced and generously donated by City of Sound. We're working hard on new episodes of Until All Are Free, and they'll be released soon. You can expect compelling stories from the front lines of human trafficking rescues, conversations with people just like you, who illustrate what it means to live as if justice is in the hands of the ordinary, interviews with our founders, Matt and Laura Parker, and representative stories inspired by the experiences of real survivors that the Exodus Road has rescued. You can subscribe to the Exodus Road wherever you get your podcasts. And if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, we'd love for you to take a moment to rate and review us. It really helps. For when the sky falls, you can